0: Father, thank you first uh, for the privilege that we have to be together here this week. Uh, I never want to take that for granted. I want to thank you for that every time that we have a chance to be together. Uh, It's a wonderful privilege to come together, to open up your scriptures, to hear your direction and love for us in your word, and to willingly lay our lives down and open up our souls and then surrender ourselves to be transformed by it. Um, It's an amazing privilege that we have to do this together, and so we thank you for that opportunity. And, Lord, we thank you for the blessing uh, that you have poured out in this church and, and in the families of this church with with expectant life and, and kids. I mean, it's unbelievable to think the number of, of babies that are coming around the corner. And, and so, Lord, we thank you so much for the blessing that these children are and that they will be uh, to the families here in the church. And we pray protection for them. Lord, we ask that you continue to do your work of knitting them together for your glory and the family's joy, uh, and you continue to protect them against anything that would come to harm or, or disrupt what you're doing. And so, Lord, we pray peace on some of these families in the homes and on the unknown and, and what kind of changes are going to come. We pray for peace in the house, peace in the family, uh, and, and joy and expectation of what's to come. And Lord, we pray for our time this morning, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that Lord, you would give, uh, you'd give me strength, um, uh, give me words um, and you take the ones that I've got and, and you do something with them uh, that you would be honored and, and your name would be made great. We thank, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. We ask this in the name of your precious son. Amen. If you got your Bibles, go to Colossians 3. It's where we've been, it's where we'll be. Um, and, and wrapping up on it, maybe. In Colossians chapter 3, we'll we'll. We'll rewind to move forward, but we'll rewind quickly to move forward. Um, Colossians chapter 3, we've been here for the last couple of weeks, it starts off with this beautiful beautiful promise, this beautiful hope, this beautiful reality that if you are a Christian, if you have united your hope, your faith, your trust into what God has done for us in Jesus, uh, there is this great reality that, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's this great promise and this great reality that that you functionally, the old you that sought to to seek its own righteousness and and seek God's approval through what you could do and what you could earn from him, really was died. It really was killed. It really was nailed to the cross with Christ. It died with Christ, and and your new self, your new life was raised from the grave with him, and, and you are a new creation, a new creature, and you are hidden with Christ in God, and when he appears, when Christ, Paul says, who is your life appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. There's this great reality that Paul's been building up to throughout this entire letter, grounding this church and grounding us in in the good news of what God has done for us in Christ in the hopes that that will then compel us to live a particular way that the realities of who we are, the identity that we have because of what God has done would be the dominant identity for how we understood who we were and how we lived that that would kind of shake its way down to the core, to the foundation of who we were, and that we would see ourselves in the lives we live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. And so it started with this great promise, this great hope, this great reality, and then Paul began to turn into the honesty that, that was still there. And we've talked for a couple of weeks about how the, the honesty and the hope of Scripture intermingle so beautifully throughout the entire books of the Bible, and that the hope of the Bible never compromises the honesty, and the honesty never compromises the hope. And Paul says, this is who you are. This is what God has done. This is how you to understand who you are because of what he has done. Now, therefore, you need to put to death the sin that still remains in your heart. And we spent the last couple of weeks dealing with the reality that that old self, that old man Paul talks about still lingers around and lurks around in our soul, seeking to choke out the life and the affections of our heart for God. And we spent a couple of weeks, so we won't rehearse it too much this morning, but what it means to be about killing sin mortifying, choking the life out of the sin that seeks to control and dominate our heart, that seeks to draw our heart and our affections away from Christ, away from the sufficiency of who he is and what he has done. And and the reality that if we do not be, if we are not about killing this sin, if we're not about chasing this sin down to the motivational level and, and, and putting to death the things that do this, sin will slowly, but most certainly, put our heart and put our joy and put our soul's affections for God to death. But sin will slowly but, but surely rob our heart's joy from what God has done in Christ and, and squarely place it on false promises, deceitful promises, plausible lies Paul talks about in, in Colossians that will seek to draw our hearts and draw our affections away from God. And the reality of it is we won't just really forget in our minds who God is and what he has done. Uh, the reality of the information won't cease to exist, we'll still be able to cognitively say, this is who God is, this is what he's done, this is who Jesus is, this is the promises, these are the promises that are mine because of it, but they will no longer ring true in our hearts. Our souls, in effect, will become numb to them. And our affections will become alive and electrified by promises and deceitful promises of things that, that promise us things that we're looking for that can only be fulfilled in Christ. And so we spent a couple of weeks talking about the realities of putting those things to death, putting to death the sin that remains in us and and knowing our sin, fighting our sin, and trusting our Savior. The process of, of really mortifying The sin that remains in our soul was this process of really beginning to identify those things that so easily beset us, those things that so easily hinder our pursuit of Jesus, those things that so easily draw us away from who he is and what he has done, to be aware of them, to be cognizant of them, to seek God's help by his spirit, to identify them, to seek his wisdom, to show us where we tend to put our hope and put our trust and put our joy. And then as we begin to know these things, to begin to fight them, to begin to do battle with them, to begin to challenge them at their most base level, to begin to take them to scripture and take them to the mat and, and look at them in light of who God is and what he has done and, and to begin to fight our sin. And part of that was putting particular things away, putting particular things away that hindered our pursuit of Jesus, things that we know that we need to not be doing because they're not necessarily bad things, but not necessarily things that all of us have to stop doing. But for us, they they hinder our pursuit of Jesus. And on the backside of that, there are things that we begin to put on, things that we begin to add to our life, things that we begin to see reflected in our lives because of this. And and Paul talks about his, as being new creations in Christ in verse 12. He says we're to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to bear with one another, long-suffering, the Bible calls that. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So forgiveness. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So in the process of fighting our sin and trusting our Savior as we put off things that hinder our pursuit of Christ and our joy that's to be found in Christ, there are things that we're to put on that reflect the new realities of who we are and what he has done and how we understand our lives in relation to it. Things like kindness and compassion and humility and meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, thankfulness, and joy. And reality is, we're not going to spend much time talking about this because we have for a couple of weeks, so you can go back and listen to it if you want. But the reality of it is, if we're not engaging actively and intentionally, the battle of sin in our hearts, the realities of the old self that continues to remain in our soul, if we do not become intentional and active in engaging this and seeking to dethrone those things from our hearts, it will kill us. It will kill us it will rob us of the joy that's to be found in trusting and in knowing Christ. That's just the truth. That's just the reality. So the rhythm, let's put it this way, the rhythm of chapter three, the rhythm of what Paul is talking about going into the verses that are to come is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves in Jesus, and he has made us absolutely new, and our lives are hidden in him. And this is to compel us then to be actively engaged in the battle because of who he is and who we are and, and what he has done for us, to engage in the battle of putting to death the things that would draw us away from him, that our hearts might be satisfied by who he is and what he has done, and that they might electrify our soul, and our and our joy might come from him and be found in him. And we might put away the things that so encumber and hinder us from pursuing him and put on the things that reflect the realities of who he is, that we would be actively engaged in cultivating the character of our soul to reflect the character of Christ. That's the rhythm of the passage. And if we don't understand the rhythm, if you don't catch the rhythm of what he's talking about and how they begin to work together, then the verses that are about to come, they're going to be taken out of context. Right, we're going to have a series coming in, probably in the summer that I'm really excited about called Conjecture versus Context. There's this battle that goes on in understanding the Bible between conjecture and what you think something means or what it should mean versus context and what it actually means in Scripture. And if you don't understand the rhythm of this passage and what Paul's talking about and the exhortation or encouragement that he's bringing this church to understand who God is and what he's done, then the verses that are gonna come in verses 18 on aren't gonna make a whole lot of sense to you and you're gonna take them out of context and they're gonna be misunderstood. And so the rhythm of what's going on is there's this reality that you're an absolutely new creation hidden with Christ in God, with an absolutely new potential to live the life that God has called you to live to reflect his character, and that potential is Christ in you, the hope of glory Paul talked about earlier. And so you're to be actively putting to death the things that would draw you away from that, that would keep you from reflecting that reality in your life. Because when we begin to understand this and actively engage this battle, When we become focused with our mission to cultivate the character of our soul to reflect Christ, it transforms all the arenas that we find ourselves in throughout our daily life. It transforms our families, our marriages, our jobs, uh, our relationships with friends. Paul's going to begin to unpack the implications for this and what it looks like to live in the reality of who we are in these situations. And so if we don't understand that rhythm, then we're going to get to verse 18 and we're going to talk about wives submitting to their husbands this is fitting unto the Lord and husbands loving their wives and not treating them harshly. And we're going to snatch these verses out and we're going to peel them apart and we're going to make them prescriptions for people without understanding the realities that these are part of what it means to live in the light of who God is because of what he has done. Because if we're not actively engaging the realities of the sin in our soul, wives aren't going to want to submit to their husbands because their husbands aren't loving them in a way that compels them to follow their leadership and be loved by them and led by them. And children aren't going to obey their parents because their parents are treating them harshly and provoking them and taking the wind out of their sails. And if we don't understand the reality of what he's encouraging us to do because of what God has already done, these verses become prescriptions for abuse. They become prescriptions for reckless behavior in marriages and families, and and ultimately when we look at the end of chapter 3 into into chapter 4 for the way that we treat the people that we work with and live with and, and do life with. So you've got to catch the rhythm. What's to come is part of what's been said. We're to live and love one another in light of who we are and be actively engaging the sin that's in us, the sin that's in our hearts that compels us and draws us away from who God is and what he has done in us, not necessarily the sin that's in your heart. And part of that battle then leads us into this relationship and we don't have time to deal with all of it this morning. We started late, sun, weather. We're just going to probably be able to paint the picture today. Um, we'll get down to, to, to more detailed things next week. Um, but it, it begins to paint this picture and this reality that to understand who we are, we have to understand what God's done. And the first thing we're probably going to peel apart and see how it plays itself out is in light of marriage. I mean, we're going to understand what Paul's talking about here in verse 18 and, and, and encouraging women. You've got to see this in, these are encouragements. These are exhortations. We take them out of context, we peel them apart, we break them into verses, we make them prescriptions, and we make them these, these rules and these, these clubs that we beat people with. But in the context of Scripture, they're actually encouragements because of what God has done and an understanding of what he is doing in our hearts and how we're to respond to it because of his grace. And so we're going to talk about what it means for wives in response to that. In thankfulness, he says in verse 17, because of who God is and what he has done to submit themselves to their husbands as it's fitting to the Lord and for husbands to love them in a way that's not harsh. Ultimately, we'll see, we'll, we'll flip over to a parallel passage when we unpack all this so that you can understand it in, a, in Ephesians 5 in a much more detailed way. You see, the reality what makes this difficult and what makes people probably recoil the most when we talk about these things is the reality that submission one in our culture is a difficult concept because of our sense of independence Our sense of personal and social independence makes the idea of submission in any particular way to any particular thing a difficult concept to grasp for men or women. It's not a gender issue there. None of us like to submit. Um, The other thing is we don't really understand what that word means. We don't really understand what submission means. And so we take it to mean a particular thing called conjecture, and then we take our particular understanding or desire for a definition of a term and stick it on someone else. And so in a church in particular, we've misunderstood the reality of what this word actually means and we've taken it out of its context and we've used it as license to treat people, women, wives, children, friends, co-workers in ways that are not reflective of the character of Christ. And so for multiple reasons and multiple ways, we don't have time to get into, we'll get into them later, maybe another time. The whole idea of dealing with this is a difficult topic, especially when you don't deal with it in light of the context that it's found. And so to really understand what we're going to talk about in relation to how these things fit into marriage and and this battle that's ensuing in our heart that we're to engage in and how it transforms the way that we love one another and serve one another and the way that marriages reflect God's glory and God's character, we're going to have to actually peel back not just to how it fits into Colossians. We've got to peel back probably to the 50,000-foot view to understand what God's purpose for this institution, this idea of marriage really is, what it actually looks like, where it, come, where it comes from, and how these ideas fit into the context of what God's doing, to then how they fit into the context of what he's saying. Or else we're gonna butcher it like everybody else always does. And so to really understand it, you've gotta take the 50,000 foot view, back up a little bit, go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible to Genesis one and two, and I'll just tell you, you don't have to go there, I'll just, I'll just tell you. We get this beautiful sneak peek Really, a sneak peek. We get invited into what God was doing in the beginning, and we get to look in and peer into the activity of God in the beginning of time and the creation of all that actually exists. And if you allow yourself to just stop for a minute and think about that, it could be one of the most mind blowing things. I don't like the movie Contact, I'm not a sci fi guy, but I had to watch it in, in college, and I remember this one moment when whatever experiment they were doing actually worked, and Jodie Foster got transported, teleported, shapeshifted, I don't know what happened, back to the beginning of time, or whatever it was they were trying to get back to. If you've seen the movie, you know better than me. But what always stuck out to me was that she was standing in this moment, and behind her was just this swirl of color and activity and light, which was supposed to indicate what was happening in the beginning of all time. And she found herself as this quantum physicist, this scientist, this rational thinker, this person who had to have everything fit into this particular box in a moment of awe. And she stood there and said, they should have sent a poet. They should have, have sent a poet. This thing is so great, so grand, so beautiful that there's no way that I can just explain what's beginning to happen. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we get to peer into what God was doing in the very beginning of time when God, by his word, spoke into existence everything that actually is. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine that. I mean, our minds can't really get around it. He spoke and things became unbelievable. And not just that he spoke and things became, but step back and slow down when you read it. God could have spoken and everything that is as it is right now could have been then, he had that capacity. He could have spoken, and 2009 is what came. I mean, he could have done whatever he wanted. Instead, he speaks in these periods of time and creates in these periods of time. In these periods of time, and he steps back at the end and he delights in his own work. He savors his own capacity. He savors his own glory. He steps back and says, "Oh, that's good." God is savoring the reflection of his own glory in the things that he creates. It's unbelievable if you stop to think about it. It really is. And so we get to peer in on what he's doing, and on this, this sixth period of time, this, this sixth day, he creates man, and he steps back and says, now, that's very good. Not just good. I, I am taking a different kind of delight in what I've just created. God said, let us make them in our image. This aspect of creation was different than the rest of it. When God created man, he did not simply create something. He created humanity in his image to reflect his character, his nature, his glory in a very particular way that the rest of creation couldn't do, and that is not gender-specific. Man and woman were created by God in the beginning as image-bearers of God, both male and female, equally bearing his image and enhancing the reflection of his character and glory. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And if you don't get that, if you can't bury that down into your understanding from the beginning, you're never going to understand what Paul's talking about and what the rest of the Bible's talking about and how we relate to each other as men and women, especially not as husband and wives. You've got to understand that men and women both carry the image of God equally, that God created men and women to reflect his character and his nature and his glory, and he made them equal in his sight but distinct in their nature. Unbelievable. Something about the distinctions between men and women together reflect something about the character of God that in and of themselves apart from each other they couldn't do. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so we don't, I don't think it's really an issue. You don't really have to press the idea with you, do I, that there are distinctions between men and women? I mean, do you get that? I mean, all you have to do is watch kids. I mean, all you have to do is put kids together and you'll begin to see the natural, inherent distinctions that are different between male and female. I mean, my son is, is three years old. He's that tall. Uh, he's, no, he's that tall. He he is a man child and he he loves very rough, very physical, very tactile engagement. That's how he shows me how much he loves me. I walk in the house now when I come home from the office, and he might come around the corner at me with a bat. (laughs) He might have a bat. He comes around the corner. His favorite story has been David and Goliath. There's not much I can do about it because there's relative biblical precedent for him beating me with it. But he... (laughs) comes around the corner, and he smacks me around with a bat. And I walk in, I drop my bag, I pick him up, and with all of my might and all of my force that I can restrain in a, in a healthy way, I throw him down as hard as I can on the sofa, and we begin to wrestle. He gets up from the sofa, and he looks at me, and he says, Daddy, let's tussle. That's his new word. We've been talking about tussling. Let's tussle. And he gets on his back like a, a grappler, and he's going to be a jiu-jitsu guy, and he goes after me with his feet and his hands. And I have to break his guard and start throwing punches. And I will throw punches and I will hit him. And God is my witness. You can ask my wife when she comes in. I will start to punch him in the chest. And I will push my hand on his chest. And he will begin to laugh so hard that it gets silent. you've ever seen that with kids, there's so much joy that's coming. in, in whatever's going on here, it just, it's unbelievable. That's how we do it. I mean, that's just what he enjoys. Built a snowman the other day. He and his mom did. His greatest joy in the snowman? Stepping back and running and tackling it, knocking it down. (laughs) She wants to put the, the carrot on his face and get it all right and get it all. He just wants to knock it down. That's the joy. If I walked in and grabbed a girl as soon as I walked in, didn't talk, picked her up, threw her as hard as I could down on the sofa, began to punch her, there is distinction. I won't won't belabor the point. There's distinction. God created men and women distinct from one another, but equal in the bearing of his image to reflect his glory. And if you don't get this, if this doesn't start as the foundational understanding for how we're going to understand how we relate to one another and what it means for us to love one another, it's not going to make any sense. You're just not going to get it because when we talk about relating to one another, we're talking about relating to one another as co-image bearers of the glory and the image of God. First, foremost, and foundational. And so Genesis 2, I love him this is one of my favorites. God's created everything, and he's created this world, and it's not formless and void, but it's not what it will be. And he takes Adam, this is pre-Eve, he takes Adam and he puts him in this garden, this beautifully manicured garden, land that I I would love to see one day, and one day we'll see a better version of it, but in this beautifully manicured land and lush garden, and he looks at Adam, he says, here's what I'm calling you to do. This is your role. This is your mission. This is your responsibility. You are to cultivate this. You are to cultivate this creation to reflect my beauty, my character. You are to take this garden, and you are to work it and to cultivate it and subdue it and spread it across all of creation. He was to take that garden and spread it across all of what God had done. And so in Genesis 2, you begin to read, and God gives him this mission, gives him this call, and Adam goes about his work. He begins to do the very thing that God called him to do, in conscious dependence upon God for who he was. and, And Adam begins to work, begins to labor, begins to name animals, and they actually obey him. You're a cow. Cow walks away. All right, I'm a cow. Adam has this authority over creation and this responsibility to subdue it and enhance it and spread it. And God looks down and sees Adam doing his work, doing his job in obedience and dependence upon God, and says, you know what? It's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. I need to, I need to get Adam a helper that's suitable for him. And all of creation, and all that God had created, there wasn't anything that had been that was suitable to be a helper, a companion, a partner in this mission for Adam. And so you get the... A great story in in Genesis chapter two. I love this one. I love this. We'll We'll just get the foundation set this week. I'll give you a week to linger on the fun stuff. God said, it's not good for him to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And then Adam woke up and he said, This this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If you've ever noticed why or wondered why, in the Bible, that text is kind of broken off. It's because when God put a great sleep over Adam and, and took his rib and formed a helper suitable for him, one that would reflect his image, one that would, together with Adam, created in the image of God, be a more complete reflection of God's character and God's glory and would partner with Adam to pursue the purpose and the mission that God had given them to, to subdue and create and cultivate and spread the beauty and the glory of God throughout the earth. Adam woke up. and What was his response? <laughs> yeah, he sang. That's why it's set apart. I, I, I was thinking about it last night. I, I, I was trying to think what would it have been like if it was like today? My mind can only come up with like a John Mayer song. I imagine John Mayer, you know, "Bodies of wonderland tune. Like there's, he woke up and there's Eve. All of her beauty, all of her glory, right there for him, created equal in the eyes of God as an image bearer with God, united with Adam. Together, God speaks to them and he says, here's what you're to do. You are to continue the very mission that I had given you before she ever came. Together now, as a family, you are to cultivate creation. You are to cultivate what I have started and what I have given you in a way that creates and shapes and brings beauty forward and reflects the character of the one who created it. The purpose for bringing them together. God brought them together, and he sent them out as a family, as a couple, On a mission, he defined for them who they were, how they were to relate, and what they were to do. They were to be about cultivating creation to reflect the character of the one who created it. That's what they were to do. They were to fill the earth, subdue the earth, make babies, spread the beauty of the garden, do work together that would reflect God's wonder, his character, his beauty, and his glory. That is the purpose for marriage, It was from the very beginning, and it is right now. And you've got to understand, your marriage will never be greater than the purpose that you have for it. And God gave marriage, gave you, your husband and your wife, a purpose when he put them together, Adam and Eve together in the very beginning. And it was to cultivate his character in creation. That includes one another. Part of your responsibility in marriage is to cultivate the character and the reflection of the image of God in your spouse. So Adam and Eve were to work together under God, dependent upon God for all that they wanted and all that they needed, and together to cultivate the beauty of what he had created and spread it throughout all of creation, including enhancing the beauty of the image of God in one another in the way they loved one another and served God together. That was the purpose of marriage. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The purpose has never changed, though Genesis 3 came. See, the problem is Genesis 3 comes and all that God had done and all that God had created and all that God had put in order gets fractured by man's unwillingness or willingness to, to be dependent upon God. Man no longer was willing to be dependent upon God for, for his source of joy and his source of strength and for his identity and his understanding. And mankind sought to define his own life and and be his own God and, and, and make his own decisions and define for his life what his purpose was supposed to be. And sin came in and began to fracture All that God had created and all that God had put in place, and instead of man and woman together partnering to enhance the beauty of God's created order and spread it throughout all of creation to reflect God's glory, now they didn't just create—I mean, cultivate a world that produced beauty and produced order. Now they began to cultivate a world that fought back against them. See, God stepped in after sin entered the picture, and and He began to place curses. He placed a curse on. On Satan, on the enemy, and a promise of of his future destruction. The first little example we get of the gospel, and it's promised that one day the the seed of the woman talking about Christ would come and would crush him. That one day his rule and his reign and his dominion over creation now would be destroyed. And he looked at Adam and he said, Now everything that you labor, all that you do, everything you put your hand to. This is the responsibility I gave you. You were to work this thing and and subdue this creation that my glory might be enhanced, that my glory might be made known, that the beauty might be spread throughout the earth. As you cultivated it and used what I had given you to enhance its beauty, it would produce wonderful, who knows what. I don't know what it would have produced. Fruit, I don't know. But instead, everything you put your hand to is going to fight you. Where you once toiled, to produce beauty, now it's going to produce thorns it's going to produce thistles you will work by the sweat of your brow you will labor and it will fight you everything that you do will fight you and to Eve he looked at the woman and he said this is part of what's going to be your lot, this is going to be part of the sin that is going to be dominating and ruling in your soul you are going to desire to rule over your husband he is going to lord over you with strength and your desire is going to be to rule over him no longer allies in this mission to cultivate beauty and to reflect the image of God through shaping and spreading the beauty of what God has created. Now, now mankind's at odds with one another. Now mankind, instead of being allies in this mission to cultivate beauty are at odds with one another, seeking to gain power, seeking to gain authority, seeking to gain for themselves what they could at the expense of the other. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want to, I'll end with this, and I want you to carry this, and we'll come back next week, and we'll begin to take what God's doing into how it fits into, into what he's talking about in the end. Here's the thing. Those sin entered the picture and fractured what God had done, and now what man and woman would put their hands to would no longer do what God had intended, but would fight back against them, and they would be at odds with one another, and they would be at odds with the created order. It did not change the purpose and the mission for the marriage that God had given them and the life that God had given them. It did not change the purpose of what God had called them to do. Man and woman as a family were still to multiply, to subdue the earth, and to spread the beauty of the created order throughout all of the earth. But now, instead of engaging that in a way that would produce that fruit, they're going to have to bring that beauty out of chaos. They're going to have to, independence upon God, and bring beauty out of the chaos of their relationship together, bring beauty out of the chaos of the earth that has been fractured, that is now fighting against them. The mission and the purpose has never changed. We are still to cultivate the character of the creator We are still to spread the beauty of God's glory throughout all of creation, including our spouses. We are still responsible to cultivate the character of Christ in the soul of our spouse. We're gonna fight against each other. And we're still called as a family to cultivate the character of Christ in our families. And we're still called as a family to cultivate the character of Christ in the places that God sends us in the places that God puts us by reflecting his glory in the way that we live. But you know what? It's gonna fight back against us. It's gonna fight back against us. This is why you have to understand not only the context for how God put marriage together and his purpose for it, but the context for how Paul brings these encouragements and these exhortations in for husbands and wives because it's part of the battle that we have to face. Part of the battle that we face now in pursuing the purpose for the marriage and the relationship that God has given us is gonna go hand in hand with the battle that we have to fight to put to death the sin that still rules us and and the sin that still deceives us and the sin that still seeks to, to, to define us. We have to put to death the sin that seeks to to draw us away from the intended purpose that God has given us in our relationship with one another. It's part of that process. It's part of that joy. But here's the thing, if we engage it, if we engage it, the promise is more than twofold. God will never call us to do anything he does not equip us to achieve. God has given us not only the promise of a new creation, And the promise of a new identity, he's given us the promise of his spirit who is always working and willing in us to work towards his good pleasure, showing us what we need to do battle with as we seek his help and are dependent upon him in this. And he's promised us in the end that together as we do this as a family, we will begin to cultivate the character of Christ and the soul of our spouse. And the beauty and the glory of Christ will be cultivated in our families and in the places that he sends us as we're dependent upon him and fighting the battle with the sin that still reigns in our soul and seeks to tempt us and draw us away from it. So you've got to see it in its context. Next week, we'll talk about what he's, what he's getting after because I, I don't want to start that. So this is just the context, just the setting. The purpose for marriage is to enhance the beauty of the image of God in your spouse, in your husband, or in your wife, and together to cultivate the character of God throughout all of creation your kids, your family, your workplace, your home, wherever he puts you. That's the purpose. The questions we're going to have to answer is, now that it's been fractured, how do we do it as husbands and wives? How do we do it? What does it look like? Together, how do we move forward in this as a family, knowing that the sin will so easily draw us away from not being allies in this battle, but seeking to be at odds with one another? So I'm going to pray for us, and, um, and next week we're going to unpack it a little bit, and we're going to have some fun. Um, it's, really, it's really fun when, when you understand it, and don't seek to use it as a way to beat people up. Um, it's actually really fun. Uh, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for, uh, one, as a, as a man desiring me to not be alone. Lord, your word says that he who seeks a wife seeks a good thing. Lord, I thank you for the beauty and the joy that comes in in being with the one that you have designed for us to be with. I thank you for the joy that comes as as together we labor to cultivate your character in our souls, that our souls might reflect your glory and your beauty, that our family might reflect a dependency upon you and a, a joy in you and a transformation that comes from your grace. I thank you for the joy that comes in that and I thank you, Lord, that you have made us aware of the things that, that stand in our way, the things that draw us away from actively pursuing this together. I thank you that you've made us aware of the battles that we have to face. Lord, and you've given us the strength and the capacity and the resources that we need to put to death the things that keep us from doing it. Thank you for giving us the mission as a family to cultivate your character. Lord, and for giving us all we need to see it done. Lord, help us... Um, Lord, help us as, uh, as we go through this over the next couple of weeks, Lord, to, to not be discouraged by how short we've fallen in different ways, but, but to be encouraged by the reality that your grace is always at work and is always powerful to transform and redeem all that we've done. Lord, that you have greater hope and greater power and greater expectation for us than we can even dream sometimes. Lord, help us to understand your hope, your dream, your purpose, your vision for our marriages, for our relationships, even for those who aren't married. Lord, begin to shape in them an understanding of who they're to be and what they're to look for and what they're to direct their lives towards. Begin to shape our understanding of this, Lord, that we might be a church made up of families as a church family. Lord, that understands your call to cultivate your character, to reflect your image. Lord, we we ask this, Lord, in, in absolute dependence and, Lord, in a desire to see your name be made great throughout this city. Amen.